Today's reading is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and the text will also be on the screen behind me. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Vivian. <clears throat> well, again, good morning. We are uh, really excited about next week, just Christmas Eve, obviously going to have two services here, same time, uh, 9 and, and 10.45, so want to make sure that you and, and your family and friends uh, join us for those services, one of those services. Um, okay, so during this Advent season, we have been making our way uh, slowly through uh, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, and I, I emphasize the word slowly uh, because much like Tessa said here uh, during worship is this idea of... we. In a, such a fast-paced season, 
we think it's appropriate to intentionally kind of throw on the brakes, whether it's to uh, wade through a text more slowly, whether it's to just reflect upon uh, the words and, and the, the stories of this uh, season. And, and we're trying to do that faithfully as the Lord has asked us. And so you want to keep your Bible open. This is what we do here at the Parks Church. Uh, we preach through passages of the Bible. Typically, we preach through uh, whole books and, um, or parables like we did uh, for the last 11 weeks. But we're making our way here through Matthew 1 and 2. And and next week during Christmas Eve, I will hit on a section that she actually read here in uh, Matthew 2. But we have to understand a little bit of the context of the Gospel of Matthew. Because what she just read was a story that is only contained in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew has a very specific audience that he's writing to. It's a Jewish audience. And so he's trying to communicate to a, a Jewish audience this theme with the introduction and really his whole Gospel as a whole. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. He is the one who, who is coming as the king of the Jews. If you remember week one, we went through what? That list of names in Matthew chapter one. And we said, what was the point? Why would Matthew begin his book with a list of names, right? And, and, and so we looked at why God's heart was writing and, 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 and what God's heart was communicating through the genealogy of Jesus. And the point really was this, that um, if, if there was a rightful king through the line of David at this time, it would have been Joseph, right? It would have been Jesus's earthly father. And so it's pointing this whole line that, that Jesus has a rightful heir to the throne, that he is the king. He's the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. And now we come to this story that is unique to Matthew. And I began to ask the question, why would Matthew contain this story? And many of you are familiar with this scene, I get it, right? With the wise men and, and Herod and, and the atrocities that Herod uh, executed there in, in, in Bethlehem and in, in that region. But why? What, what, what is the, the point of that? And I want to start by um, maybe looking at a traditional, and I, I mean like an American nativity scene. Okay, like let's look at it. This is something like I have one of these in my home, not this particular one, but something like this, right? How many of y'all have a nativity up right now? Okay, and these are usually the players in it. All right, uh, you got Mary, uh, of course, white as all get out, you know, Joseph, um, baby Jesus, you got some animals, um, you got an angel, you got a uh, shepherd over here. And then on, um, on the right, you've got these guys and they are dressed up, right? Typically they have crowns on or some kind of headgear on. And they're bringing these gifts, the three gifts that we, we read here. And they are known as the who? The, the wise men, right? And um, most of our information about, and that's the, obviously the story, the scene that's unique to Matthew is with these, these wise men. Most of the information we have about wise men is actually from American tradition uh, rather than our Bible and ancient history. Um, who were these wise men? Were there, were there just three of them? Were they kings? Were they at the major scene? Um, well, I hope you picked up, even in Vivian's reading this morning, that probably some of those preconceived ideas or those American traditions that have set in on us about the wise men aren't true. For example, um, they were not gathered around the birth of Jesus, okay? Okay. You know, so, so most scholars believe that wise men would have showed up somewhere around 18 months after Jesus was born. So here's what you need to do, right? Grab the wise men off your nativity scene, okay? In June of 2025, bring them out, okay? And be like, they're here, you know? That's more accurate, okay? Um, were there just three of them? We'll talk about that in a little bit. 
And uh, I, I want to laser in on these three and this scene and walk slowly through it. And there's, not, there's some in this scene I'm not going to get to. There's some of the things in the scene I'm not going to get to, obviously. But uh, one of the things during the season, you, you've heard the, the phrase familiarity breeds contempt, right? You've heard that. I think when it comes to the scriptures, that familiarity breeds laziness, right? We just go through this season. We just walk through it. We just say, yeah, yeah, I know it. Wise men, baby, and a, you know, wood manger, which it wasn't wood, it was stone. You know, all these things. Um, you know, they were there. They were riding camels. Really? And so let's slow down. Begin to ask the question, who actually were these wise men? Were they even wise at all? Well, the wise men were the magi referred to an ancient tribe particularly a priestly tribe within a larger group of people or nation throughout the ancient East. Think about, if, if, if you know the 12 tribes of Israel, you know that one of their tribes was the tribes of, tribe of Levi, who was dedicated to the priestly work. The Magi, they were the priestly tribe in prominent world powers throughout history. They were skilled in astronomy, which is the study of stars, and astrology, right? This is the study and study of the influence of stars on human affairs and, and different things like that. Forms of divination and sorcery. The magi or, or wise men, those, those terms are used uh, interchangeably, by the way, magi or wise men. Um, they were well known for interpreting dreams, for participating in magic, magi, magic. You can see the connection there. The Magi, or the wise men, rose to prominence in the Babylonian Empire. And I know I'm getting a little bit nerdy and historical here, but go with me, okay? They rose to prominence in the Babylonian Empire and really maintained their influence and grew their influence, in fact, through the Medo-Persian Empire, even into the Roman, early Roman Empire as well. And so you can imagine for kings or for political leaders how powerful a group of people who claim to be able to tell the future or interpret dreams were, or would have been. Over time, magi, or wise men, actually became the right-hand advisors to the kings of these world powers at the highest level. You say, Kyle, how, how do you gather all that? Well, I think there's two places we need to turn. First, obviously, is to our Old Testament. And then we also look at history. But let's look at our Old Testament. The book of Daniel is a great place to start. Daniel chapter 2. We preached through Daniel here several years ago, and so some of you understand the context of Daniel, that God's people, the Jewish people, have been taken into exile into Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is the king, is ruling over that time, and it's not just the Jewish people, it's not just Israel that, that has been taken in, it's, it's lands, he's just conquering everything and all he can get his hands on and bringing them together. And part of conquering lands is that a king, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, would bring different pockets and pools of people, different influencers, young people, into his royal courts to train them up in his ways, to learn some of their customs. So when he tried to execute different plans or different things like that, he'd work with them to get consensus of that group of people as a way for them to keep peace. And so Daniel, um, right, Daniel and the lions, that, that, that guy, Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is one of those young men that King Nebuchadnezzar actually brought close to him and, and a few others. And, and in Daniel chapter 2, it's interesting how the magi or the wise men are brought up, right? Remember what I said about the magi, they were people who knew how to interpret dreams, right? And divination and, and predict the future, if you will, astrology and astronomy and all of those things. And so King Nebuchadnezzar keeps having this dream that's like haunting him. 
And he wants to know what the dream means. He wants the interpretation of the dream. So who does he call? You got it. He calls the wise men. He calls in magi. And, and uh, he says, listen, I want to know what my dream means. And they say, well, of course, king. We'll tell you what your dream means. Tell us your dream. And he's like, no. Right? Read it for yourself. He goes, no, if you're truly who you say, or if you can do truly what you say you can do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me what my dream is, and then tell me what it means. Right? And so these magi and these wise men are like, we can't do that. You need to tell us the dream, then we'll tell you what it means. He's like, no. And so look at this. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 12 through uh, 13, because of this, because they, they were telling the king, no, we need to know your dream. We can't do that. We can't interpret your dream. Here's what happened. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to tell them. Well, what does that tell you about Daniel and his companions? They were wise men. And so Daniel hears of this. Obviously, he's about to be executed. He's like, well, hold on. And so what does Daniel do next? Go to the next verse. I believe I have it here. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show, show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Pause right there. Don't go to the next one. Here's what Daniel does. He hears what the king has said. He's going to execute all of the wise men, Daniel and his, his, his posse included in that. Here's what they do. They begin to pray. They begin to ask Yahweh, they begin to ask the one true God, Lord, we help us, move, give us the interpretation, give us the dream. And guess what God does? He gives it to them. Gives them the dream, gives them the interpretation. So this is now Daniel going before King Nebuchadnezzar and going, listen, you're wise men, you're, mag you're, 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 you're magi, you're enchanters, those who are sorcerers, none of them can do this because it's all a fraud, it's all fake. And then look at what Daniel says next after that. That's a pretty big indictment, right? But, Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. And he lays it out for him and interprets it. You can read it, the rest of it. And then what is King Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel, the wise men, verse 48 of the same chapter? Here it is. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Hold on. So now you have Daniel, this man who fears God, who loves the Lord with his whole heart, is now the top, the chief over all of the magi, the wise men. Think about this influence. Think about all of the different people groups and the nations that have gathered that also are represented within the magi or the wise men that Daniel is now over. I love what one commentator says. He says, because of Daniel's high position and great respect among them, it seems certain that the Magi learned much from that prophet about the one true God, the God of Israel, and about his will and plans for his people through the coming glorious king. Because many Jews remained in Babylon after exile and intermarried with the people of the east, it is likely that the Jewish messianic influence remains strong in that region even until the New Testament times. There was this knowledge that a Messiah is coming, 
that a king of the Jews is coming. Go to your Old Testament book, Esther. Esther chapter 1 with the king of Persia. Again, I'm just setting the scene for you of who the wise men actually were. And so in Esther chapter 1, it said, Then the king, the king of Persia, said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all men who were versed in the law and judgment. And the men next to him were, and they listed out the wise men that were next to the king of Persia. Notice that it says that the wise men here were consulted by the king around judgment. And in fact, history would tell us that in Persia, to be crowned king or to be acknowledged as king, two things had to happen. One, you had to be raised up in the way or the school of the magi. You had to understand how things worked among that group of people. And secondly, you had to be confirmed by a wise man, by, by a magi or the group of magi. And so the king here in Esther is not making a decision without the wise men signing off or confirming it. The magi or wise men were a powerful group of people who would confirm the kings of this day. Well, there's a problem here in Matthew chapter 2. There is a king, and his name is Herod. You see, now we might understand the ripples that went through Jerusalem on that day. Now we might understand what's actually taking place when, when, when three wise men show up. Oh, wait. Riding camels? Probably not. Wise men are the magi. They didn't travel in three packs of three, okay? There were upwards of, there were hundreds of people. With the magi, there were traveled with them some of the greatest cavalry historians would tell us not just to protect them because of their status and their, their, their royal advisement, but also because of the gifts they come bringing, which we'll talk more about next week. <laughs> because of the gifts and the value that they would have brought on this journey that probably would have taken them anywhere from 40 days to, to two months on this journey. And let me tell you, most likely they were not riding camels, okay? If they were Persian or from Persia, let me tell you, they were probably riding with a cavalry of horses, so imagine this scene when they roll up, not three wise men on camels, right, in their garb, right? That's not intimidating to anyone in Jerusalem, and probably nobody notices, right? Herod's probably not freaking out all that much if three people show up. But when an army of, like, special forces show up with the Magi, now you understand. Look at it in Matthew chapter 2, when it says, let's see, it's verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So not just Herod is going, wait a minute, but all of Jerusalem with him, their eyes are open. If nothing else, they're just going, this is like political upheaval because the magi who anoint kings are here, and there's something going on with a cavalry of people. And for Herod, listen, Herod was a paranoid king. Jesus, at this time, verse 1 tells us, is actually born at the end of Herod's 70-year life. Herod, uh, ancient history tells us, was violent like our minds can't imagine. Always paranoid about someone grasping for power from him. He was a king, and, and I quote this from one of the ancient historians, who was never at peace during his reign. Think about that. Never at peace during his reign, he killed his own family, his friends, his allies. Why? Because he was paranoid that somebody was always taking, going to take his power from him. Even as he neared death. And by the way, 
Um, he, he was Jewish, but, but, but the Jewish people, they despised him. So much so that at his death and planning his death, he knew no one would mourn his death. So his plan, and he told his family this, he brought the closest advisors to him, the most beloved people um, by the Jews in Jerusalem at that time. He brought them close, and he, he told his family, I want you to execute them when I die. He goes, hey, listen, Jerusalem may not mourn for me, but they will weep when I die. That's how twisted Herod was. That's how, how, how much he was depraved. That's how, how much he was tormented. And so Jesus was born here, and imagine this. He hears the news from the Magi here in chapter 2 that the king is born, a king to the Jews. Right? Just put yourself in Herod's shoes, which I wouldn't recommend all that often, right? He has to go, I'm the king of the Jews. Who are you to come to me and go, there's a king of the Jews? Now, the Magi could think possibly at this moment that Herod being Jewish or Herod having that mindset and being there in Jerusalem was also anticipating the Messiah, the one true king. They had mistaken Herod's heart. So Herod hears this from the Magi. He hears this from the, uh, the, the, the wise men. And then notice what Herod does next in verses 4 and 5. He actually assembles all the chief priests and scribes, so the religious leaders of the day, and they go, hey, um, would you guys remind me where our Old Testament tells us, you didn't say Old Testament, where our scriptures tell us, where the prophets have said the Messiah would be born. And what do they do? They quote Micah 5.2. And they said, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There it is. So now Herod hears confirmation of what the wise men just show up wanting to confirm as well, because remember, they're the kingmakers of the day. They, they show up saying this, and Herod goes, oh no. And so Herod looks at the wise men in verse 8, and he says, let me know where the child is so I can come worship him too. <laughs> How honest do you think that is? And the wise men see through it. But Kyle, what, what about the star? What in the world is going, right? The star that's leading the wise men there. And you have to understand that the star, it got them to the place of Jerusalem, right? The first place that the wise men go or the Magi go is not Bethlehem. It's Jerusalem, why? Because if they're looking for a king, they're going to go to the, the place, right? They're going to go to the spot, and it's Jerusalem. And so they're there going, hey, a star has led us here. We've seen a star, right? And we know that something is taking place, and there is a king that we want to come and worship. There's a king that we want to come bow down before. There's a king we want to come and confirm because we've seen this star. Kyle, what is the star? Uh... Well, you may read that it's a triple conjunction of planets, uh, uh, Jupiter and Saturn, a specific formation of a fish that occurs every 800 years. You may hear that it's a comet. You may hear that it's an, the angel of the Lord. Um, and to all that, I say, maybe. We don't know. We don't know what the star is specifically. However, we do know from our Old Testament in Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, that there was a prophecy about where Jesus or the Messiah would be born would be marked with a star. I wish I could go through the whole scene in Numbers 24, but I'll just read the verse to you. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. That's in our Old Testament, establishing how and where to look for the Messiah. Now, obviously other uh, prophecies go forward like Micah 5 too, that say specifically in Bethlehem, but this idea that there will be a star marking where the Messiah would be. And let me tell you, I believe that the, the Magi, who, 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 again, being led by Daniel, would have known some of these things about these stars and potentially how it lines up with the Messiah that was prophesied, the king that would come of the Jews. And so this word for star in the Hebrew language, the word for star there, is the same, it's, it's, it's a word that is, is, is nearly sim- similar, is nearly uh, alike to the word for glory. So the word star in Numbers 24 is more like blazing. There is this blazing. When the Messiah comes, there'll be this blazing in the sky, right? Because the planet's aligned or because it's a comet or because it's an angel. I don't know. But there was a blazing that God ordained in the sky. Now, I know you don't care about my personal opinion, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I believe that that star was the glory of God, was the Shekinah glory of God because of the Hebrew word here using blazing, being very similar to the way in which the Israelites were led at night with a flame of fire representing God's presence leading them. I also think it's interesting that it doesn't say anything about Herod being able to see this blazing or this glory of God. Maybe not revealed to him, but revealed to these magi, revealed to these wise men. But notice what confirms the location of the child is not general, it's not general revelation. It's not a star. It's not, it's not just this moment of God's glory being seen. What is it that tells the exact location of the child? The word of God. The word of God confirms, I've seen this star. I know it is, whether it's the presence of God or the, uh, God using stars, whatever it is, I, I know, but, but I don't know specifically Micah 5, 2 in Bethlehem. So that is what leads them to the place of being before Jesus and Herod being in torment. Now you might see why Herod would carry out the atrocities that he carried out and taking all the lives of the children under two. Threatened, worried, tormented. Kyle, what, what does all this show us? This, this, is, this is interesting, but what does it do? Well, f- first, I hope it does this, and, and I, this is not even one of the points at the end, but as I was praying this morning, I hope that it, it shows you how sovereign our God is over every detail, every event and every moment, whether it's this moment here or every moment in your life and in my life, that not one thing escapes our God and his plan and his purpose for his glory to go out. Not one thing, tragedy or triumph, not one thing escapes him. And I hope that you feel loved in that. I hope you feel that in these details that we just gloss over and go right through, that as we, as we slow down and we, get, we see the detail and the richness of how our God has been weaving all of this since the beginning of time to redeem. But as I've studied, again, Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 together, I can't help but be confronted by this point again and again. And I think I made it in, in two weeks ago's sermon, so I'm going to make it again. 
we can't help but see God's heart for the nations. God loves the nations. The Magi are showing up here to worship Jesus. The message is unmistakable that even if Israel won't worship Jesus, the nations will rise up and fall before him. This is God's heart for all people, for all nations. And and to think this, that the nations in Jesus' birth scene come to him in chapters 1 and 2. The nations are being drawn near. The Magi are representing that. They're they're falling at his feet, worshiping. What What does the end of Matthew look like? Matthew 28. The nations are coming to him, Matthew 1 and 2. Matthew 28, what does it say? Jesus looks at his church and says, you do what? Come on, what is it? Make disciples of what? All nations, why? Because that's God's heart. His love, his zeal, his affection is for all people, all nations. And it goes out so all the nations come to him and then Jesus rises up right after his ascension. He looks at his disciples and says, you go now. You came to me, I am sending you out to all nations. And I think during this Advent season, this is one of the maybe most understated things, that there are literally, let me get the number right, 42% of the world population, 3.4 billion people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have no idea about the first Advent of Jesus Christ. Unreached peoples, we call them. 42% of the world have no idea of what we celebrate year after year and has become just religious routine for many of us. Have never heard the gospel. Have never heard Emmanuel, God has come with us and it's Jesus. May we not forget that. The second thing is this. This text illustrates is the clash of two very different kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. You see, the kingdom of God, which is invading earth through this child named Jesus, Emmanuel, with us, is reclaiming lost humanity, is restoring what was broken, is bringing true peace versus the other kingdom represented here, the kingdom of this world, which can be embodied by Herod. The kingdom of the world, which is going to fight and wage war against those realities of the kingdom of God with everything it has. This is the scene in the very first verse of chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the clash of the two kingdoms. Right there in one verse. Herod, like I've said, violent, paranoid, never at peace king. This is what the world, the kingdom of the world gives us. Oh, it promises a lot but it gives something opposite of what it promises every time. It only takes from us the the, the things that God desperately wants us to have in and through him alone. The clash of these two kingdoms are very real. Jesus so lowly, meek and mild. Really? And the final point is this. There's only one appropriate response. There's only one appropriate response when we understand that Emmanuel has come. You see this text, it begs the audience or the reader to relate and follow the lead of who? The wise men. 
is ones who have come to inaugurate the king to worship him, to give their best to him because of who he is. There is only one appropriate response when we understand and see who Jesus is. See, I love these, these magi, these wise men. And, and again, um, we don't know what their worship was cloaked in. We don't know if it was honest, if they were really surrendering their lives or they were doing some political procedure. We don't know. But Jeremiah 29, 13, not, Jeremiah 20, not that verse that you think I'm going to. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this. And says this to us this morning. That when you, you will seek me, you will find me. When you seek me with all your heart. If you seek me, you'll find me, God says. When you seek me with all that you are, when you lay down your agendas, when you lay down your prejudice, when you lay down all of those other things you want to bring in trying to seek Jesus and go, Jesus, I want to come alongside, I want to come alongside you. I want you to be my co-pilot. I want you to be all those things. She goes, no, that, you're, not, you're not seeking me. You're seeking him as an add-on. You're seeking him as a, a, a product. But Jesus goes, when you seek me with all that you are in desperation and in honesty, guess what? You'll find me. And when you find me, the word of God says, when you find Jesus, when, when you understand his pursuit of you predated your pursuit of him, when you understand his love and his grace and his mercy toward you, when you receive that, when you understand that, the only appropriate response is worship. Listen, I say it week after week after we take the elements of communion. Listen, the only appropriate response when we understand the mercy and love of Jesus that he came and dwelled among us to save us from ourselves is worship. And I don't just mean I don't just mean lifting our hands during singing time at church. I mean our whole lives. All that we are, our vocations, our, 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 if, if you're a kid here and you're in sports, you're in your music, all of it is laid at the feet of Jesus. He's worthy of it all. And listen, and when we do that, some of you are anxious about that. When you do that, you're going to experience a peace like you have never experienced, something supernatural, something above nature, something that the kingdom of this world can never give you. And so week after week, we have been um, highlighting a covenant partner with a story of Emmanuel or God with us. Uh, this week, we have another one of those stories around this idea of peace and the peace that only Christ can bring. Let's listen. My name's Jason. I grew up uh, in a Christian home, very lightly churched, you know, just the basics, you know, just enough to, uh, to get salvation. And, um, you know, church a few times a year, you know, so I don't know all the songs and don't know all the jokes, but, uh, you know, but later on, and you know, when I was about 21, I guess, 22, I found, I did kind of find what it meant to follow Christ. I found Metro and kind of got plugged in there and, and really kind of tasted what it was like to, um, to seek God's will and and to have Him be the Lord of my life, you know, and not just the Savior, you know. But I was still still struggling with, you know, kind of this value issues and self worth, and I was getting some praise at work, and um, and that felt good, you know. And so I had this kind of like, you know, worthlessness and self value problem, you know, that I'm trying to figure out and, and work seemed to fit in there, you know, it's like, oh man, I get this praise from work and it feels good and I feel valuable, you know, and unfortunately I had found drugs and, um, and I saw that as a way to, to just get more work done, you know, it's like, I can do these drugs and, 
and stay up late, get more work done, get more work done, get more praise, get more praise, get get more value. And I feel, you know, it's like, like I was solving my problem of, uh, and man, it seemed like a, seemed like a perfect plan, you know? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, the, uh, the drugs really gripped me pretty bad. Um, they went from helping me get work done, you know, so that I could get more praise so I could be more valuable to like just numbing the pain to, from the mess that I had created. And, uh, and I had moved from, you know, cocaine to methamphetamines and, and, um, as you could imagine, created a huge trail of wreckage in that time. And, um, and it just got really dark and really lonely for me for a long time. I remember the night, uh, 8.26.07, I was living on the 11th floor of this building downtown and uh, was really having a hard time not not jumping out that window that night. And uh, I was just laying on the floor um, and I felt God just let go of me. and. You know, I had walked so far away from him, and finally, he's just like, okay, if you want to keep going your own way, this is what it's going to feel like. And to come, you know, hit bottom with earthly things and just make this horrible mess, and I'm laying in this pit of misery, and then to feel the hand of God come out from under me, and then it was... It was sobering. I mean, that was it right then. I had tried everything to turn around and get out of that lifestyle and, 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 and nothing worked. I had, you know, done the rehabs, done everything, lost everything multiple times. None of that worked. But man, I felt him let go of me and say, okay, have at it. And it was in that moment, man, I did a 180. And he was there, and he put his arm around me, and he lovingly walked me out of the hell that I had created. You know, I, I still struggle with, you know, trying to earn my way and, and do things, but, uh, but he still, he keeps pulling me back. <laughs> but I've never lost peace, you know. We've gone through really hard things since then. You know, just last year, we, um, we, you know, we lost, um, we lost a baby, and um, that was really hard. But I never, I never lost peace in that, you know. I know that he's good. He's, he's proven that over and over again, and that he's, he's gonna make it all make sense one day, you know. And and it's hard. It's tough. But um, but I trust that he's good, and I know that he's with me, because I've never lost peace in in that time. You know, Emmanuel, God with us, is just it means so much to me, because I know he's here, and I know he's with us, and. Yeah, that's all I really need, you know?
appreciate Jason sharing that with us. And if you know Jason, <clears throat> he's one of the most joy-filled guys around, full of the peace of Christ. And in that story even, he talks about the hand of God being removed. Um, but then simultaneously, how when he turned, God was there. That what can feel like the absence of God driving us to God is actually the grace of God. And what you understand is in those moments, those deepest, darkest moments, God has not left you or forsaken you. That even in this space and even in this gathering, God has sovereignly placed you here in the detail of your life that you would hear about his love and his grace and his mercy. The very thing you're chasing after peace is only found in him. God with us. And so we're going to take communion. Hosts uh, come forward to prepare us to receive communion this morning. Communion, the elements of communion were instituted by Jesus for us to remember his sacrifice, to literally embody his presence in a broken piece of bread and a cup of juice for us to recall and to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, by remembering he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. The same God that come is, came is the same God who is with us now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we receive these elements by faith. And I pray that if you're here and you haven't trusted in Christ, that you would surrender your life to Jesus this morning going, Lord, I've tried everything. Lord, I've made a mess of my life. As successful as you may look internally, you know the reality of the internal life of your heart. And this morning you'd submit and surrender to King Jesus. And you would feel that peace that would wash over you that so many of us in here have experienced that Jason talked about in that brief little story. So let me pray for us and then we'll come to the tables and receive. Father, help us to steward this moment even for your glory. Holy Spirit, that you would lead us and illuminate Jesus to our hearts and our minds like never before. For those who are in utter despair, I pray that you would bring comfort. For those of us standing on ourselves and our own effort, you would humble us by your grace and your mercy. For those on the religious rat wheel and race of, of religiosity, I pray that you would draw us off and woo us by your grace and your mercy to the finished work of the cross, that we are saved by work that is complete in you, Jesus. Lord, there's nothing lacking in that. And so, Lord, I pray even as you have woven the details of Matthew chapter 2, you're weaving the details and the tapestry to this day for our salvation, for your glory, and for our good. We love you. May we receive these elements by faith. May we take them as a community by faith, as worship, the only appropriate response to you, King Jesus. We love you. And host, you can lead us.